Welcome to the Creative Soul Healing Podcast. Here we talk about the connection between creativity and healing, and how we are creative, and how creativity helps us heal mentally, physically, and emotionally. Join us now. Everyone, Larissa Russell of Creative You Healing, and welcome to the Creative Soul Healing Podcast. Today I have with me Tina Fumo. Tina is an author due to a tragic story that happened to her family. She recounts that story in her book, Fancy Prison. An instinctual pull as old as time, a grandmother wanting to hold her newborn grandchild. Tina travels to a small Canadian town and finds herself in the most stressful ordeal of her life. The authorities have apprehended her two-week old grandbaby. What her and her family go through to get their baby back will absolutely shock you. So welcome, Tina. Good morning, Larissa. Well, I'm happy to have you. I I read your book um, and, you know, I'm going to, first we'll start. You just share a little bit of your story and your path. And then I have some questions for you that we'll, we'll touch on, but yes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, me in a nutshell, I am a first generation Italian Canadian girl. I was born in Ontario and that's where I grew up and I got all my education in, I went to, uh, of course, being Italian, I went to a Catholic school and high school, and then I went to university in Toronto. And after I graduated, I heard there were lots of um, jobs out west, so jumped on a plane, and I never, I never went back. And so, I the majority of my life has been lived in this tiny mountain town of Banff. I lived there for about thirty years. So over half my life and my I became a mother there and I worked there and and eventually when my daughter grew up, as children tend to do, she went off into the world and I met my um, soon to be husband. And so I'm with him. I'm still with him. And I made decided to leave Banff and make the move to Edmonton, which is uh, where you and I both reside. And um Yeah. And then so the story happens when my daughter who moved away, she moved to a neighboring province, British Columbia, and she had her baby. And for the most part, she wasn't doing that great in a small town. Like I knew she was making a mistake moving there from because she she'd been a Banff kid. I mean, Banff is a pretty unique town. And but, you know, since one did kids always listen to their parents so I knew she was making a mistake there she really struggled there with there's no jobs housing you know all the issues that uh, a lot of uh, small communities face and then boom she got pregnant and had a baby girl and so that's what the story a fancy prison is about is about we we were really lucky because we had a family friend who turned into our biggest advocate Suzanne and I honestly don't like, I don't know what we would have done without her. And I'm I, fairly certain our outcome would have been a lot different if we hadn't had Suzanne on our side. Um, yeah, so so that's kind of the intro, intro as to where I'm at. And then that's the story that I recount in uh, Fancy Prison, which you, you read. So maybe mm-hmm. you'll, what questions you have about the book. Well, well I'm going to ask the question that everybody because everybody that I've talked to about this is like, well, they must have done something to deserve it. Yes. Right? Yeah. And you address this in the book, but can you touch on that? Because it's just yeah. shocking to me. Shocking. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and that, and you know what, Larissa, that is a normal human emotion, and I th- I really think that MCFD and Child Protective Services they exploit that human emotion because that is always the first go to that people are. Well, she must have done something wrong, wrong. You know, she must have done something to deserve this, and. The question is, no, she didn't actually. She made mistakes. She was trying her best, and which is what we used to do in our generation. Only trying her best didn't mean having social workers wait for you to make a mistake and then go, aha, you know, we caught you. Now we're taking your kid. You know, we didn't live with that kind of fear, right? So the so the answer to your question is we suspect that the a woman that like there was a lady upstairs who was living uh, in the same house as my daughter we suspect that she called cps saying or mcfd saying that oh you know she's using meth or something like that which wasn't even true and we had evidence to support that fact because they coerced a signature out of my daughter, which again is another issue, you know, like to go and coerce someone to, to sign something. They go into her medical records, they get her pH. Again, we suspect that, you know, that's what they did because they're not really forth. They're not really forthcoming with all this um, stuff that they do because I really question how much of this is legal. Okay. Because it's just, it just seems to me they trample all over human rights And the tests were coming back clean for her urine. They were coming back clean for the umbilical cord for the testing of that. And so when I arrived in town, they were kind of exploiting the fact that, oh, well, we've sent her placenta off to be tested, kind of planting a seed of doubt in my mind to set up that, you know, sort of Friday showdown where, I really think that they were planting seeds of doubt in me so that I would turn on my daughter in front of them and start yelling at her and getting angry at her. And then again, they would go, aha, you're not a stable grandparent, blah, blah, blah. We're taking your grandchild. And none of that happened. Like she was clear, her, the test came back clean. Well, actually we still don't know what happened with the placenta, but the test came back clean. I didn't flip out in front of them or, you know, blame my daughter. I was just really confused as to what was going on and just trying to reconcile, like, wait a second, I thought social workers are supposed to help people. So why do I feel judged and exploited? And why do I feel like there's some kind of hidden agenda going on here that you are not being very honest about at all so it was a it was a a really frustrating situation yeah and how how long was your granddaughter gone from 27 days which was which as far as these cases go they uh, that was a very short amount of time but I can assure you it was the longest 27 days of my life because so much of it like I said is you're confused so we just didn't know what next you know, stunt they were going to pull or what next accusation they were going to pull. And, you know, all you had to do is wait till Friday afternoon, right at five o'clock and then boom, they, you know, drop another, oh, well, now we're keeping the baby for this reason. It just seemed to be very systematic. They would just input whatever reason at a certain time in the playbook, you know, to 
to suit their narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was fascinating to me. And then some of the other stories that you shared of other people, like the poor woman who whose child died in foster care, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I've had um, I've developed um, a different, an interesting relationship with Jamie and Marilyn this year because one of the well here I'll like this is the, the little baby you're talking about here, Delana. Um, so obviously I contacted them early, well, last year at this time, like January, February of 2021, uh, to ask them their permission for to use the cover, uh, a picture of Delana on the cover. Because at that point I was writing my book and then I was starting to think about, well, you know, how do I want to present it? What do I want on the cover? So the relationship I've had with Jamie and Marilyn has changed in the past year. And at the end of my book, I say how um, we can't forget these little babies. Like this has to mean something. What we went through, what a lot of parents are going through, this little baby Delana Sullivan who died six days uh, after being in foster care, this has to mean something, you know, and and we have to continue fighting. So at the end of my book, I say how I will someday go and visit Delana's grave. And that day has come and gone. And it was really, I'm going to start crying now because it was just so, it was just so frustrating. And I was so angry and saddened at the same time to be standing at the grave of this little girl who used to be a healthy four month old baby, like, None of this is making any sense at all. And, it, you know, it's why I call BS on this system. So we need to we need to stop making judgments. Like you said, the people that you've told, they automatically go, oh, well, they must have the reason. So, boom, that needs to stop right now. OK, because you need to keep an open mind and you need to start listening to these parents and what they're going through, because I guarantee you anybody with some logical common sense, when you start to understand, Oh, okay, well, what they did this and what you're trying to do this. And, you know, you will start to understand that. No, a lot of these cases are just really embellished. They're all, they're very one-sided. They only just focus on the negative. They don't give you the benefit of the doubt. There's no objectivity at all. And like, how, you know, how is this, how is this Canada? This is just, it was just, yeah, very, it was a very frustrating situation. Yeah. Fortunately for us, we healed because we got our baby back, but I don't know where we'd be right now if we were still like in, you know, fighting the system to find out where, where they put her and where she was. And because I think the, one of the first things they would have done is change your birth certificate and change your name. Yeah. And I, you know, our first thought or second thought maybe then is, well, shouldn't the baby go to a family member, which would have been you, right? And then, you know, so, so that didn't happen. And then, okay, well, you've proven that the allegations are wrong with the tests. Shouldn't you get your baby back? Nope, that's not how it worked. You still have to hire a lawyer, go to court for all of these things. And you'd think that, you know, once you've proven repeatedly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that the allegations are incorrect, that it would be over. Okay, so I'm going to interject there a couple of times. So um, they don't give you an opportunity to prove your side of the case. 
So any kind of justice that we got was in the form of a lawyer preparing that report that I put into the book. And they purport, they, that was me forcing the issue. We never got to say to a judge, hey, look, at this is, you know, this is what they're saying, but we have proof that negates what they're saying. So, and, you know, and everything that they're saying is all past tense, past tense, past tense. There's no new information and any new information they're gathering. They're only using negative information. So there, it was incredibly one-sided and very rigged. And so the mechanism, so I'm going to refer to that as a mechanism though, because once they took the baby, they made a big mistake and they knew that they made a big mistake. I don't know like to this day, I don't know why they thought they would get away with it. In the end, I think that they realized that they just picked the wrong family, but they just sort of pigeonholed us into these um, labels that, oh, they thought my daughter was poor white trash. They just pigeonholed me into, oh, well, she must have uh, inherited um, problems from her mother, which wasn't the case. You know, my daughter is her own being and she'll, you know, she lives her own life and makes her own mistakes, just like I did. But it's very, very difficult. And it's disingenuous for this whole system to expect parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles to appear in court and prove on paper how much you love your child and how committed you are to their future. Like it, it, it's ridiculous. So, so much of this really needs to be out of court. It, it like, and they exploit the... They exploit the adversarial situations that are created in court because they know how to use the timelines in court. They know how to file affidavits. You know, they're quite skilled. At, to me, that seems to be their only skill is that they, they're quite good at being uh, glorified law clerks. But I just saw no evidence of them actually working with families and that's what I call uh, in my book called BS on and I just saw no evidence of them actually trying to prevent separating the baby from the family you know which is they say it's supposed to be their last resort but again I saw no evidence of that to me it seemed to be the first thing that they wanted to do and after they did that they kept having to to go back to that because they basically had to cover their butts because they realized that no, you shouldn't have taken the baby in the first place. You had no legal right to do it. The grandmother was right there. I recorded everything, you know, and it's just like, yeah, I just, to this day, I, I don't know what they were thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, <laughs> and this is not a one-off case, right? You've met many people who have had similar situations happen yeah. and many of them did not get their children back. No. No, even though they had no reason to be taken in the first place. Yeah. Or yeah. if they're or if they did give a re reason at the time, like in our case, I think at the time they gave the reason that, oh, well, she breached her um, safety plan agreement, um, which, again, to me, when I go back and read that safety plan, it was just setting her up to fail. Like, for example, in the safety plan, she could she couldn't have contact with the father of the baby because uh, they weren't living together. And I'm like, okay, well, so this is a small town. So say my daughter is walking down the street and she bumps into the father of the baby. And of course he wants to see his baby kind of thing. Does that constitute a breach of the 
safety plan and then thereby give you grounds to take the baby. I mean, this is ridiculous, you know, like it's, it, it just seemed to me like a lot of the, the paperwork that they were creating and then, and then for like putting a lot of pressure on my daughter to sign, um, it, it was just setting her up to fail. It was just some little thing in there that, oh, she'll, you know, they'll ne she'll never be able to do that. And then we'll catch her on that and then take the baby then. Right. But um, so in my book, I do mention like about three or to four months into our uh, serving out the court orders, they did the same thing to me, sent me the forms, expecting me to just sign it. And, and, you know, and they did, they actually expected me to sign this. And I'm like, I'm not signing this. Like I read through it. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. But they kept sending the social work over and they kept sending me the forms. And I, I you know, I mean, I would have loved to have been a fly in the wall that morning about after I managed to kill about a month of their time sitting in that social worker's office when they realized, yeah, grandma's not signing these forms. It's like, why would I? You think I trust you? I don't trust you people, okay? Like nothing that you've done up to this point has made any sense. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a harrowing story when you think about it, right? Um, but I want to move on to sort of uh, the healing part of that. And and how was writing the story part of your healing journey? Oh, it just, for me, it was like, I remember a day in April. So when, when we went through this in March and we were just shattered, like we were just so traumatized. And then I got my family out of BC, which really helped create that provincial boundary. And I'll... I remember a day in in April writing everything out and it took two or three hours, but I wanted to write it while it was still, while the, while it was still raw and the feelings were, and it was like, it was so cathartic, you know, just that after, and the, and the little baby, she was sleeping beside me in the bassinet as I wrote and I was like, you're, you know, I was so angry writing things out and then look over her and just be overwhelmed with love and then go back to my writing and write out these frustrations. And so, yeah, it, to me, for sure, it was really cathartic um, writing, uh, writing it out. And of course, my book had to be a little more polished than that because <laughs> I think if I ever showed readers that sort of initial writing, they'd be like, Ugh, you know, because there was a lot more F-bombs in it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, yeah, getting that anger out. And yeah. so is, is this something you've always done? Have you always been a writer? Have you? Yeah. 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 I've never published a book before, but all of my life, when I've gone through confusing situations, I find it really helps to pour out my feelings in the written word, you know, and cursive. Like, I, I you know, I don't, I think now, of course, uh, when you publish a book, you have to be on the computer so much because you got to email back and forth to the publisher with editing and stuff like that. But the actual physical artistic expression of writing out cursive with your hand with a pen meets paper to me that is just it's just such a, a release and and of emotion and and working through you know whatever confusion you're going through yeah yeah I would absolutely agree with that and it's something I teach uh, my students as well is mm -hmm. when you're typing you can go much faster than you can actually think through it right and mm -hmm. when you handwrite you allow yourself to immerse in it so mm. you can actually release 
and there's a, a, a connection to what you're actually writing that you mm-hmm. don't get when you're typing. Yeah, I don't I don't know how fast you type, but I don't think <laughs> I don't think I I don't think I type that fast. I think cursively when I do write write it out and you're like you said, you're immersed in it. What happens too is that your handwriting is an extension of how you're feeling because that, like I said, that first draft, it would have been messy and, you know, scratching out here and there, but that's part of, you know, just getting those emotions out onto paper Mm -hmm. is that style of handwriting. Yeah. Yeah. And so I ask all my, my guests this, but what does healing with creativity mean to you? Oh, healing with creativity. I I think it's that expression of hmm, feelings and how, okay, if you can get out, particularly negative feelings, because it's not good to carry that negativity. It's not good to carry that trauma. So when you're able to get it out of you, you can almost recreate who you are. It's like you're starting afresh. Yeah, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go today? Um, no, I guess just, I guess where to find my book. We'll I don't know if you're, yep. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, for sure. Because, uh, I mean, if you if you read the book and you like the book, and by all means, uh, plug it for other people to uh, to read it and buy it on Amazon, and that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, it's a story. I have to say that I would never have even thought of because, mm. you know, um, I have to say, growing up a middle class white woman uh, in Canada, I was not something I ever thought about having my kids taken away or, mm. and and so you. I have to say, I always just thought, well, there has to be a reason, right? Mm -hmm. If social services involved, there has to be a reason. Um, But reading your story and then hearing about the other people and it's like, wow, this is really frightening. The power that they have. Yeah, it is. It is frightening for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I didn't write the book to frighten people. I wrote the book to raise awareness uh, about it because I I do think that most people are like you and the closest you ever want to come to this experience is to read about it. You don't want to go through it at all because it just, the time, like they can go in and they can exploit a situation and they can shatter your life like that, like that by that one action. But the time that it takes you to heal and work through what they, what they do in an instant, again, it's just such an imbalance of, of how uh, unfair it is and how much they exploit the power that they have to, to be able to take uh, children from loving homes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. My heart breaks for those, those women. I'm so glad your daughter got her daughter back. Yeah. Oh, we know nobody more than us. Yeah. She's four years old now and uh, she'll, she'll be five next month. And she was worth the fight. That's for sure. <laughs> I have a granddaughter who will be five next month as well. And so oh. I totally feel that. So, <laughs> so I want to thank you again, Tina, for being here today. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. To our listeners, we will see you again next time. And in the meantime, I wish for you amazingly creative days. Thank you for listening. If you found our podcast of interest, we'd love for you to leave a review wherever you listen in. 